Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Dr. Mosoka P. Fala, is helping to lead Liberia's fight against COVID-19. He is an infectious disease and public health expert and is the Director General of the National Public Health Institute of Liberia. Dr. Fala was a key player in Liberia's successful suppression of Ebola in 2014, for which he was named as one of Time Magazine's Persons of the Year. I mention this because, as Dr. Fala explains, Liberia's experience with Ebola is very much informing how both government and society are approaching COVID-19. I caught up with Dr. Fala from Monrovia, Liberia. When we spoke, he had just concluded a conference call with other health officials from countries that are members of the Economic Community of West Africa, or ECOWAS. I kick off by asking him about the role of regional cooperation in the fight against COVID-19 before we dive into the situation in Liberia. And here, a few things stood out to me. First, it is clear that Liberia has many, though not all, of the pieces in place for the kind of containment strategy that is required for COVID-19. Also, the people of Liberia, because of Ebola, are taking this seriously. As Dr. Fala explains, local communities without prompting have set up handwashing stations and are enacting social distancing practices to the best they can. But Liberia is also a country with a high number of people living in poverty, which is, of course, complicating the COVID-19 response. Its health system is weak and could be easily overwhelmed. Until Liberia can significantly ramp up diagnostic testing, Dr. Fala is concerned about the impact of sustained community transmission. This episode gives you an inside look at how Liberia is confronting COVID-19, and I think you will appreciate it. And today's episode is supported in part from a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York to showcase African voices in peace and security issues. To view other episodes in this series, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you all. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Mosoka P. Fala, Director General of the National Public Health Institute of Liberia. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, within the, eco- the economic block that makes up ECWAS, the local co-issues, and each of these issues have has, a, has an organization. So 
Within the health issue is the West African Health Organization called WAHU hmm. that is based in um, Bobo Burkina Faso. And so they were reaching out to me um, because we are part of the, the network of public health institutes to see how we can share ideas, strength, to build strategy, and then identify challenges. And so this was the meeting. In preparation for a bigger meeting on next week, Tuesday, where all uh, 15 members of the ECOWAS country will meet, the public health institutes will present the epidemiological situation, how much the cases are, uh, are, are growing, um, what are the age group who are dying, questions like, uh, is there a specific age group, what are comorbidities, what are the strategies for testing, what are the challenges, and then that common uh, forum, forum would then enable others to learn from others what others are doing better, but more besides to see some of the challenges, logistical challenges, and how the Wahoo Equas region can generate resources to support the countries deal with the the issue of uh, the COVID-19. As the uh, one of the directors was saying to me, the issue of COVID now affecting affects all the Member countries of ECOWAS. And so ECOWAS, through the Council of Head of States, the Head of States, and the Council of Ministers are interested for us to have kind of uh, strategy, joint strategy, uh, sharing of experience, creating platform. And so Tuesday at four o'clock, there will be this long discussion and presentations by all other countries, laboratory will be presenting so that we can have the forum to share our experiences identify resources and challenges. It's interesting to me that this is being viewed as a regional issue, and I guess it's heartening because an issue like this probably requires a degree of regional cooperation. Yeah, and the good thing about this is that I think this is one of the things that started as a result of the Ebola. Equus, since the Ebola, Equus has been playing a very, very critical role in the country to realize the need for a regional approach. I think it was first piloted during the Ebola and it's worked well. I sit on a lot of regional boards for Wahoo. We've been looking at issue of regional sample transport, uh, regional rapid response team. So it has, it has been going on now um, even before COVID-19 could start. Mm. I quite remember being one of those presentations in Abuja and Dr. Britos, one of the deputy director for EPI said, because our common demography, uh, ecology. Um, he was convinced that another epidemic was going to happen very soon. And there was a need for the African, uh, the West African region to come together and work for a common platform. So it has not happened. And so they are just sort of adding on what has happened since the Ebola to build this uh, a, a stronger um, collaboration. Uh, so can you tell me, what does the, the scene look like in Liberia today? What has been the impact so far of COVID-19 in Liberia? Basically, uh, Liberia, like most African countries, have a struggling economy. And when pandemics of the nature take place, they have a tendency to affect the socioeconomic aspect of life. You know, we try Liberia, one of the very first country to have started preparing for COVID, to prevent COVID. Since the 22nd of January, we enhanced our surveillance system at the airport, having realized that Chinese, a lot of Chinese traders come to Liberia, Liberian students go to China for businesses. We realized quickly 
that there will be a risk of importation from China to Liberia. So around the 22nd of January, we set up a system of hand screening, hand washing at the, at the airport. Eventually, it shifted to Asia, Europe, and the U.S. Unfortunately for all our cases, came from Europe. Yeah, that's interesting. So you were able to track and, and identify the fact that the first cases from in Liberia came from Europe? Yeah, going back in retrospect, yes, yes. So the first, actually, the first three cases came from the first case. The first case um, came from Europe, was a, was a high-level official, came from Europe, and got sick, alerted us. And then one, uh, he infected three other persons, but one of the things we were able to do initially was to be able to get out of his high-risk contact and took them for observation. Actually, two of them became symptomatic from the observation. But then going along the road, the third case was a very interesting case. The third case actually presented to the hospital at our teaching hospital after visiting two other hospitals with, uh, with fever, um, pneumonia-like symptoms, and were referred to our testing center. When we tested her, she became positive. Um, our investigation, in her own mind, the only place she could remember being infected was from a long-time schoolmate who had come from Italy. And this is very interesting because all she could remember has been the source of her infection. We found a friend. Actually, the found a friend came from it. She came from Italy and then into Kenya for a couple of days. She came to Liberia. We were able to follow her up. The source for the third case, follow up for up to 14 days at home. And then on day 15, she went to this gathering. And according to the third case, she saw this friend of hers who had been a classmate for over 30 years, had not seen, and gave her a deep embrace. And after that, she got sick. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that we went back to test the source of the infection by molecular testing, and she is negative. Hmm. And that led also, maybe she had already resolved the infection because she had gone 15 days and over, it was like 21, 25, 26 days when we got the alert for the third case. And so she be, she could, we could not prove that she was confirmed. But all likelihood, it proved that she said in her own mind, her contact was only with this friend of hers who came from Italy. And then I, th I think that that sort of anecdote just um, suggests just how difficult it is to do the kind of contact tracing that's required to isolate COVID-19. I mean, how many cases are there confirmed in Liberia right now today? As of today, 225. Do you think that number is actually greater, though? Because those are just the numbers that you've tested. Do you have a, a model that suggests the actual number? Yes, we think, we think the number will be larger. You know that we have community transmission now. We have in Monserrado County, the capital city, there is community transmission and there are exported cases to eight other counties. And we think that the number could be larger because of the fact that the issue of asymptomatic people may be around. Many of the times we have developed having adopted this from the from the model from um, South Korea, 
We have developed a drive-through testing center. People can drive and get tested. But many times, what I noticed when I reviewed the, the case investigation form, when you ask them if they remember having any contact with an individual as a source of infection, they tend to say they cannot remember. And so that's one thing that worries us. Even though we do know that COVID-19 spread by direct contact, but it also spread on surfaces. What percent of that is from surfaces, we don't know. So we would think that the only way to answer the question you asked, we have to ramp off our testing, increasing the number of contact, encouraging more people to come for testing so we can have the actual number. Do you have the kind of testing that you need right now? I mean, here in the United States, a big you know challenge early on was just the availability of, of tests. Uh, do you have the, the, the number of tests that you need and the ability to conduct those tests? Yeah, at this stage, yes. Initially, when we started, there was a few days we, we had a challenge, but 10 got to two major sources. Debbie Asia was able to send us some test kit from Germany. Um, and then we needed the superscript that we got from the US, NIH. And then the Jack, the Jack Ma Foundation to the Africa CDC hmm. were able to send us enough test kit for up to 8,000 tests. And then the transport medium became a problem, but we also got 15,000 transport medium from the JAGMA, and then we got 1,000 from the National Institute of Health. Hmm. And so we have around eight to 9,000 um, uh, tests, ability to do eight or 9,000 tests. There are still challenges. We need to have more um, PCR machines. Uh, the, the JAGMA test kit comes with the ABR system. We need to have more ABR system. Hmm. But one of the things that will help us, that will revolutionize our ability to test, will be our ability to use the gene expert. You know, I was involved with the Ebola response, and one of the, the, the revolution that happened to us was when we developed the, the gene, when the gene expert was developed and sent to Liberia, because the gene expert is a cartridge system, it's a closed system, it can be rapidly deployed anywhere, it takes just two hours to get a result. As a result of our ability to use the gene expert during the Ebola, we're able to have people stay at home and then we we'll take the specimen and test and get a result in real time. But what we're having is that we're having 21 gene experts across the country, but the challenge is a cartridge. The cartridges are made in Europe by the company, but it's difficult to get them because the demand, the global demand is high. Mm. So you were saying that... You know, you 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 know have the potential to um, do these rapid tests. You just don't have the specific equipment needed because they're hard to come by because demand is is so high. Um, I, I'm I'm wondering you know in terms of you've referenced this before how Liberia's experience and your personal experience in um, combating and uh, ridding Liberia of Ebola is informing your response today. Um, can you just sort of explain so what what lessons are you drawing from your uh, experience with Ebola to applying right now to the COVID-19 response? Yeah, so the way I like to say this is that when Ebola started in Liberia, we literally had to take the specimen to Guinea or to Europe. But what has happened today is as a result of Ebola, we have the laboratory capacity. When Ebola started, we had to build a lab from, from zero, from the scratch. 
But with COVID-19, we already had a platform. All we needed were the, were the reagent, the chemical, basically. We had a platform. We had a three manpower to do laboratory. Since Ebola, we've been testing for other diseases. We've been doing surveillance for Ebola, for other viral hemorrhagic fuel, like yellow fuel, like Lassa. And so we had a three manpower. We had the equipment. All we needed were the specific uh, primers and probe for COVID-19. And so once we got that, we could easily move ahead. So we had the element of speed, the public health capacity, the, the diagnostic capacity as a result Ebola was in place. The second thing is that we had the three manpower. Many of the persons now on the COVID-19 response came from out of Ebola to get the training. After Ebola, there were a lot of investment by the BH, the World Health Organization, by the US CDC to train the manpower. And so in terms of uh, the public health workforce was already in place. We had the structure, the template to develop the incident management system. As a matter of fact, Labrador was the very first, one of the first country to initiate uh, airport surveillance, enhanced screening at the airport, airport form. Labrador was one of the first country to introduce quarantine of all international visitors. Those were all built on the bill on the on the on the um, Ebola response. Also, the ability for the population to shift in key areas like hand washing was easy because of the Ebola response. When we passed a mandate for people not to shake hands, which is a common practice in Liberia, it was easy because it was based on the Ebola response. Also, the ability to mobilize the communities. In fact, this gone weekend, I went to visit communities, slum communities, and many of them were able to say that because of our their Ebola experience working with us, working with me and others, they were able to initiate awareness campaign in their communities without even any formal government structure. They were able to introduce things like hand washing. There were massive and widespread hand washing, massive and widespread um, ability not to shake hands. It started to happen long before we had a confirmed case. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to lay down those foundations that help us um, and in terms of case management, um, we're able to quickly uh, use our lesson learned from Ebola to identify where to begin managing a case. Met with young doctors who have done some work of Ebola in managing cases. And some of the key leaders today on COVID-19 are people that came out of the Ebola experience. Yeah, I, I was looking at some of the statistics on your website. It seems like there are more contact tracers in Liberia right now than there are in my own home state, even though our population is roughly the same. Um, and, and it seems, again, that's a consequence of, of uh, Ebola. But it's also interesting to me that you say that the population is sort of accustomed to these kinds of measures because of uh, Ebola. Um, to what extent has Liberia imposed a kind of economic lockdown, a kind of stay-at-home order? I mean, and is it even possible? I mean, I've, I've been to crowded marketplaces in, in Monrovia, and you know, it's like the lifeblood of the economic activity and the livelihood of so many people. Um, how do you sort of encourage people to stay away? It is a very complicated question. Um, as the president was contemplating initiating a lockdown, he had to take a lot of that into consideration. There were some that were argue, arguing for 100% lockdown versus a partial lockdown. And I think in the wisdom of the president, because I was in the conversation we're having, he was like, well, we can't do 100% lockdown, but what we could do, we could get some freedom for people, to, some, for people to be able to quickly go and find food, but that they would not be able to travel long distances. So 
there is a form of partial lockdown that goes from 3 p.m. to, to 7 a.m. And so that goes on um, so people can come and rush to the markets. Also, together with the lockdown, they will attempt to get the market to select who goes to the market to sell. So one group sell a day and another group sell alternatively. But honestly, um, between the, in the morning to, three, to 2 o'clock, people have to go on a struggle to farm food. And so social distancing is a challenge as we wanted it because we had to struggle. And so that's why we are trying to work hard, the Public Institute, we're trying to look at the issue of masks and enhancing hand washing. Because talk about lessons from Ebola, most of the community has organically been able to develop their own hand washing station manned by young people, by the youth. And so we want to further encourage the hand washing. We want to further encourage uh, the masks because we do know that a complete uh, social distance will be high, like the Waterside and West Point. But if there is marks and there is hand washing, we think those two can reduce some of those other challenges that will happen. So there is a partial lockdown. It's not 100% stay home. I do know the president is working hard on the issue of providing uh, food, rice and st some rice and food for the vulnerable population. And so the goal is that after for rice and food is provided for the vulnerable population like West Point, then there can be a 100% lockdown of a shorter duration. It cannot be too long, mm -hmm. but it can be of a shorter duration to take the outbreak from the, the street into the home and to allow the healthcare worker contact tracers to be able to, to be able to see they can find the sick. Are, are people staying away from church? I know just how you know it's central churches are to you know most of the Christian population of Liberia. I mean, there's like you know four churches on every block. Uh, like, are people staying away? Pretty many people are staying away from church um, for a long time. Um, as you know, it's a, it's a central place for spiritual psychological development. The government, the president have asked that churches get open, but at a reduced number. Mm. This one will be the first experiment at 25%. But I think the librarians are trying, some churches still think that they, they don't want to open church. So basically people are obeying the church, stay at home. Yeah, it's surprising. The pastor themselves, for almost four weeks, five weeks now, we've had churches close, their doors, and it's been working. Yeah. How concerned are you right now for the capacity of the health system of Liberia to deal with uh, COVID-19? You know, it sounds like you have a pretty robust contact tracing and testing apparatus going, though, as you said earlier, you're kind of, you, you still need some equipment. Um, is the health system currently able to deal with the cases that it's receiving? Like if I were to go to like Redemption Hospital in Monrovia right now, what does it look like? Yeah, the health system still has its own challenges. I was in West Point, the star of the sea. Uh, what I noticed is that the number of patients have dramatically dropped. People are not coming to the to, for healthcare. When I try to prove why some of them is fear, I'm from the Ebola, thinking that if they come, they will just be taken away. So I think overall, the number of patient load has dropped. For me, is that a good thing? Because the place to triage and pick up the COVID would be those who come to the clinics. That was the strength of China. China had this strong clinic for fever. I was just reading about China this morning. But people are not going to the clinic as, as we would like them to go. But honest to God, that's my biggest worry. 
if we're to have a bigger case load, our health system will have a challenge than most, than more parts of Africa, there will be a big challenge with the health system. Um, we still have our indigenous problem, the issue of supply chain. So if we have large cases today, it will tax, it will really tax our health system. Um, and so the best bet is see how we can work with the population to farm more testing. My second worry is that I want to see more testing done. I want to see more people coming back for testing. Because uh, while all other countries have succeeded, like South Korea and other countries, their source is based on massive, intensive testing. So I worry that the patients are not going to the hospital now. And so what that means is that people may be doing self-treatment at home. People may be going to a local pharmacy for treatment. There is a possibility there could be circulating cases that we may not know. And like I used to say, in contact tracing or in case investigation, what you don't know should worry you a lot. What you know is easy to control. It is the things that you don't know that is happening that worries you a lot. And so it's so that, and also, I want to see more and more increase in testing, more and more positivity cases coming up. Then we know the extent of the problem and try to work towards a particular issue like isolating the contacts. Yes, but if the cases grew too large, it could overwhelm our health system like most African countries. I guess in the coming days and weeks, uh, what sort of indicators will you be looking towards that would suggest to you if Liberia is on the right path, if it is able to sort of contain COVID to the point where it does not overwhelm the health system? If I begin to see increasing testing, there's a number of testing going up and high. Uh, just increase a ramp up of testing, the more ramping up of testing. If we see decreased export of cases to other counties, and if we begin to see reduced uh, hotspots and clusters, we have to be able to have a reduced hotspot and clusters. That's the only way, but if we continue to see the cases are all around the place, multiple hotspots, it will be worrisome. But if we see some of the hotspots are shutting down, because that's how we essentially defeated Ebola. We used to watch for hotspot and we put our resources around the hotspot, shut them down by getting all the contacts, testing. So we, I want to see more and more testing, more and more community involvement, more use of masks, hand washing, and then we're testing. If we see the number, with, if we see increasing testing in the thousands and decreasing number of cases from the thousands, I will be happy. happy. But if I see maybe 40 person coming for tests, 20 person coming for tests, and I'm having two, three cases, I'm not happy. But if we are going to ramble to 500 tests a day, and you know, and see, and see that there's reduced cases with 500 testing a day, that's a good sign for us. And you know, do you have the support you need from the international community to get to that 400 tests a day mark that you just cited? We have some support to start, but it cannot be sustained. If we run it, we have it, like I said, we can do 8,000 tests, but that would mean if we did 500, two days is 1,000, it will go off quickly. So like the appeal is to work with the private sector, the international community. I do know the World Bank has made some commitment to get more. It's one of our biggest support so far has been the World Bank. The other international partner has been limited. We want to see more. Like I, In fact, like you read my mind, yesterday I spoke that Probably the best I would want to see 50,000 to 100,000 test kit available 
You know, I think I'm reading about Ghana. Ghana has done around 50,000 tests, 60,000, even though our population is small. But if we can be able to have the capacity to, to have in country 100 to 150,000 tests, if you can safely do that, you know, South Korea will do almost 120,000 tests a day. But for us as a country, you know, our population, if we can do about 150 to 200,000 200, tests, we don't have that support now. And this is the kind of support that would need heavily to see that kind of testing done. Uh, well, Dr. Fala, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you wanted to add or, or discuss? I'm, I'm happy to keep speaking. I also want to be respectful of your time. No, no I think you touched the key issue. But again, the fundamental issue I see that we need to find investment in. I know it's limited because the countries are battling COVID. But this kind of disease starts with the community and ends with the community. I think I was in the community last week. I see a lot of volunteerism happening some of the young people that wake up early in the morning to draw water. And then, and then they, they have these ropes. Before you cross, you got to wash your hands. They've gone two months now without any stopping yet. But you know, in a country with difficult economics, you cannot have volunteerism going on for long. People need to eat. So finding funding to support communities, because I know I work with the UNDP, I work with the WHO to harness money for the Ebola. I have almost 5,700 young people teachers, pastors, and imam work with me. And they were able to help heavily to continue the outbreak, but we were able to fund some minimum fees for them. And, you know, so, you know, we're going to work with the community. The potential lies with the community because our health system is not that strong enough. It's not. And so we're going to be putting money in the community hands for two reasons why I always believe this. They people understand the community. They can find the disease. They can build the trust. But also it can help the economy. Because after this thing, the economy is taking a blow. But putting money in the pockets of local people in the community in the slum to help the COVID and at the same time get funding would be a way that we can have a dual advantage. You know, winning the war against the outbreak and at the same time keeping the economy afloat. That's why I really want to make a appeal that we put money into local community initiative, working with local groups in the slums. They already started that initiative all around. If we can put some money, it will help us. But my fear is that they, were, they are starting now, but many of them are getting to get weak because they've gone two, one, two months. Some of them wake up early in the morning to get water. They have to buy their own soap, so we've got to put money in the hands of the communities. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That, that's a, a good point to end on. Um, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Fala, and for your work. Thank and, you so much, Good luck. Thank you so much, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Fala. That was very helpful. And I was sincere in the end when I meant best of luck to him. I do hope he gets all the international support he needs to successfully contain COVID-19 in Liberia. And one last disclaimer, the opinions expressed in the course of this episode are those solely of the people who expressed them. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.